Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 227, Who Should Christians Worship? In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to present a paper of mine that was published in spring of 2014 in the Journal of Biblical Unitarianism. There's also a version with my slides on YouTube, but here I'm going to present the final polished paper. This is an issue that constantly comes up. I see this all over Facebook, all over the internet. In my view, there's a lot of confusion on this topic, but I think that the New Testament sorts it out well enough. Without further ado then, my paper, Who Should Christians Worship? Footnotes not included. Section 1, A Tale of Three Arguments. Who should Christians worship? Interestingly, thoughtful Christians have been somewhat divided about this. I will argue that scripture and careful reasoning can actually sort these disagreements out. Let us consider three clashing arguments. Some Christians reason as follows. 1. Only God should be worshipped. 2. Jesus should be worshipped. 3. Therefore, Jesus is God. That is, Jesus is God himself. God and Jesus are numerically one. Others have argued like this. 1. Jesus isn't God, that is to say, they are numerically two. 2. Only God should be worshipped. 3. Therefore, Jesus should not be worshipped. Following this reasoning, some 18th century Unitarians, such as Joseph Priestley and Theophilus Lindsay, denounced the worship of Jesus as, quote, Christian idolatry. Other Unitarian Christians have disagreed, as have some Trinitarians. Both of them reason as follows. 1. Jesus isn't God, that is, they are numerically two. 2. Jesus should be worshipped. 3. Therefore, it is false that only God should be worshipped. Who's right? To decide this, we need to make a few logical distinctions, and then with these in hand, revisit the above arguments in light of the New Testament. Section 2. Validity and Soundness A valid argument is one such that, if each premise is true, then the conclusion must also be true. That if is important. We can tell whether or not an argument is valid simply by seeing whether or not the premises, if true, would really imply the conclusion. One needn't agree with the conclusion of an argument to admit that it is valid. Validity concerns only the structure of an argument. Consider this argument. 1. All things made of chocolate are delicious. 2. The moon is made of chocolate. 3. Therefore, the moon is delicious. This argument is indisputably valid. If both premises 1 and 2 were true, then the conclusion 3 would be true as well. That's all it means to say that the argument is valid. It's as valid as any argument ever was. But what this example shows is that we want more than validity from our arguments. We want valid ones, yes, but we also want arguments with true premises, which will, given validity, guarantee that the conclusion is true. 
The problem with this argument is that both premises are false. It is what logicians call valid but unsound. A sound argument is one which is valid and each premise is true. Thus, the conclusion is true as well. We are looking then for sound arguments. Here is a classic example of one from ancient times. 1. Socrates is a man. 2. All men are mortal. 3. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. This argument is both valid and sound, or at least it was before Jesus was made immortal. The premises together imply the conclusion, and so if the premises are true, then they establish that the conclusion is true also. Back then to our three theological arguments. Which of them are sound? First, note that all are valid, but they can't all be sound because their claims conflict. If you accept any one argument as sound, to be consistent, you must reject each of the other two arguments. Which, then, to accept? Reason can help. Section 3. Indiscernibility is required by numerical identity. All sides should agree on a self-evident truth, one which any normal human adult knows to be true. Philosophers call this the indiscernibility of identicals. It says, for any x and any y, x just is y only if x and y, 1, have never differed, 2, don't differ, 3, will not ever differ, and 4, could not differ. The phrases x just is y or in logic x equals y, those mean that the named things are in fact one thing. They are really an it, numerically one being. It doesn't mean that they're similar or that there is some quantity which is the same. Rather, the term X and the term Y refer to one and the same thing. The principle gives four conditions necessary to an identity statement being true. If any of those fail to be true, then the X and Y must be two and not one. The basic idea is that nothing can differ from itself at any given time. Of course, things do change, so a thing might be different at different times, Perhaps now you have a headache, and five minutes ago you did not have one. But this is impossible, that right now you have and do not have a headache. Everyone knows this. Suppose you are accused of a terrible crime. There is a serial killer loose in your town, and the media calls this person the tennis racket killer, because he or she beats people to death with a tennis racket. And somehow you are accused. They think you are the tennis racket killer, and they haul you into court. How will you be exonerated? How will you prove that you are not the tennis racket killer? You will show that you and the killer have differed in at least one way. This will absolutely prove that you are not the killer, even if we don't know who the killer is. If you and this person can be shown to have differed in only the smallest way, that is enough to prove that you are not him or her. You may be similar to the killer in as many ways as you please. Perhaps you live in the same town, and perhaps both of you have a wicked killer backhand. Maybe you wear the same brand of tennis shoes and so on, but even if you're similar to that person in billions of ways, that won't prove that you are the killer. So long as we know you to have differed in but the smallest way from the tennis racket killer, this proves that you are not that person. We can apply this reasoning to people in the Bible. Is it true that Saul equals Paul? That is, that Saul and Paul are one and the same? All agree that they are one and the same man. The two of them don't differ at all. For example, both are from Tarsus, 
both received an education as a Pharisee, both wrote 1 Corinthians, both were in certain years called Saul. Here we have two names for one individual. What if some Bible interpreter suggested that James is none other than Peter, that James just is Peter? This would not be hard to refute based on what the New Testament says about each. Consider the episode where Peter walks on the water and then sinks. As best we can tell, James is in the boat the whole time. This proves that it is false that James equals Peter. They have differed, so can't be one and the same. Or what if, more plausibly, some interpreter asserted that the prophet Elijah just was John the Baptist? After all, Jesus said that, quote, Elijah has already come, but he wasn't recognized, and they chose to abuse him, end quote. And the gospel writer adds that, quote, the disciples realized he was talking about John the Baptist, end quote. Matthew 17, 12, and 13. Isn't Jesus implying here that John just is Elijah and vice versa? Presumably not, for they have differed. At some point in the first century, we think that John baptized Jesus, but we don't think Elijah did that. And hundreds of years before, Elijah was taken up in a golden chariot, and as best we can tell, John didn't even exist at that time. We're presupposing here, I would argue reasonably, that the New Testament assumes the falsity of reincarnation. But then, we know that it is false that John just is Elijah, for they have differed. Section 4. Jesus and God are not numerically one. Let's get more theological now. Some Christians think that Jesus just is God and vice versa, that they are in fact numerically one, that Jesus equals God. Is this true? We must ask whether they have ever differed. If so, they must not be numerically one. All Christians should say that Jesus and God have differed. Any Trinitarian should agree that God somehow contains or is three persons. God, according to any Trinity theory, is tripersonal. But Trinitarians don't think that Jesus is himself tripersonal, that Jesus contains or is three persons. So one is, either now or in timeless eternity, tripersonal, and the other isn't. According to any Trinitarian theology, then, they differ and so can't be one and the same. A thing can't differ from itself, either at one time or in timeless eternity. Here's another argument which should be accepted by any Christian who believes the New Testament, Trinitarian or not. There was a time when Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing that a terrible fate awaited him, the fate of being cruelly crucified by the Romans. He prayed to God, saying, quote, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. End quote. Matthew 2.39 At this time, Jesus did not will that Jesus be crucified. And at this same time, God did will that Jesus be crucified. Thus, 
Jesus and God have differed. Whatever your theology, you must agree that Jesus and God are not numerically one, for they have differed. It doesn't matter if you think Jesus is part of God, or that he's a member of a group which is God, or that Jesus has a divine nature. All of this is consistent with the falsity of Jesus equals God, that is, the claim that Jesus just is God. All of this is consistent with their being numerically distinct. Section 5. The first and second arguments are unsound. Let us return then to our first argument. 1. Only God should be worshipped. 2. Jesus should be worshipped. 3. Therefore, Jesus is God. We've just seen that if the New Testament is to be trusted, or even if Trinitarian speculations are acceptable, then the conclusion 3, that Jesus just is God, is false. The argument, then, though it is valid, must be unsound. It must have at least one false premise. It must be the case that the first and or the second premise is false as well, for it is impossible that only true claims should logically imply a false claim. And premises 1 and 2, if true, would imply the conclusion 3. In other words, the argument is valid. But which premises should be denied? The first premise, that only God should be worshipped, or the second premise that Jesus should be worshipped, or both. To answer this, let's revisit our second argument. This is the argument that, 1. Jesus isn't God. 2. Only God should be worshipped. 3. Therefore, Jesus should not be worshipped. As we've just seen, we must accept premise 1 here, that Jesus isn't numerically identical to God. We must hold instead that Jesus and God are numerically distinct. But what about 2, the claim that only God should be worshipped? If we also accept 2, then we will have to accept 3, the conclusion as well, that Jesus should not be worshipped. And if we accept the argument as sound, then we must be careful never to worship Jesus. I suggest that the Bible will settle the issue for us. In Revelation 4, the prophet has a vision of God in his heavenly throne room. Quote, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. End quote. Revelation 4, 2, and 10 and 11. Who is this one seated on the throne? It is obvious from the whole vision that this is the same one seen by Isaiah and Ezekiel in Old Testament times, and the text says this is, quote, our Lord and God, end quote. This is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the one true God of both the Jewish scriptures and the Christian New Testament. God is being worshipped here in Revelation 4. Something really interesting, though, happens in Revelation 5. Quote, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp 
and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. End quote. Revelation 5, 6-12 In this text, both men and angels are worshiping the Lamb, and the basis for their worship is the amazing service that he has just accomplished for God of willingly giving himself as a sacrifice to ransom people for God, to make them into a kingdom of priests. But this isn't even the climax of the chapter. This comes next, quote, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation 5, 12-14 Notice that there are clearly two recipients of worship here. The Lamb, that's Jesus, and God, that's Yahweh, the one who sits on the throne. The two are being worshipped side by side. It is as if they are now sharing the throne. And this is obviously religious worship. It's not merely the sort of civil honor one gives to a president, governor, or king. The worshipers sing the two of them a hymn of praise and bow down to them, all in the setting of corporate religious worship, what some scholars would call a cultic context. Wow! We see here the human Messiah the man, Christ Jesus, being worshipped alongside the one true God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. This should be enough to settle the matter of our second argument. Its second premise, that only God should be worshipped, is false, now that Jesus has been raised and exalted by God to God's throne. But the same claim, that only God should be worshipped, was premise one in our first argument. So for the same biblical reason, we should declare that argument unsound too, not only because it has a false conclusion, which it does, but also because it has a false premise. It is ruled out by Revelation 5 to say nothing of the practice of Christians going back to New Testament times. Section 6. The third argument is sound. What about our third argument then? It says that, one, Jesus isn't God, two, Jesus should be worshipped, three, therefore, it is false that only God should be worshipped. This argument is vindicated as sound. As we've seen, the Bible directly implies both premise one, that Jesus isn't God, and premise two, that Jesus should be worshipped. And the argument is valid, so 
we must accept the conclusion three as well, that it is false that only God should be worshipped. This argument is sound, and the others are unsound. The contest between the three arguments should be settled for any Christian who acknowledges the authority of the New Testament. Section 7. Three Objections and Replies Let us now consider some objections to all this. The first objection is, The text itself, Revelation 19.10 and 29, asserts that we should worship only God. And yes, Revelation plainly implies that Jesus should be worshipped. Thus, it plainly implies that Jesus is God. In reply, the first claim here is false. The text doesn't say that only God should be worshipped, though some misread and even mistranslate that claim into Revelation 19.10 and Revelation 22.9. What happens in those places is that the angel who is delivering these revelations to John rejects worship for himself. He instructs John not to worship him, but rather to worship God. He doesn't say to worship only God, which, as we've seen, would be inconsistent with chapter 5. What the angel says, don't worship the angel, but do worship God, is consistent with one also worshiping the exalted Lord Jesus. Commenters note that the writer here is concerned to discourage angel worship, which evidently was a problem at the time. Here's a second objection. You're missing the point. No orthodox Christian thinks that only God, that is the Father, should be worshipped. Rather, any being with the divine nature should be worshipped. In reply, I'm not missing the point. I'm well aware of the many Trinity theories, past and present, and theories on which the Father and Son share a nature. I've written a fair bit about this, but you won't find anywhere in the Bible the claim that any being with the divine nature should be worshipped you will find the command that only God, that is, Yahweh himself, should be worshipped. In the Ten Commandments, God says to worship only him, Exodus 20, 1-4, and we know that this is the same one Jesus calls our Heavenly Father, the one who is both his God and our God, John 20, 17. This is a better objection than the one just given, and we'll deal with it below. Here's a third objection which may come from Unitarians who are against worshiping Jesus. But Jesus, one, worshiped the Father, two, never demanded worship, three, taught, like all Jews, that only Yahweh, that is to say God the Father, should be worshiped. Consider, for example, Jesus' temptation. There, Satan offers, quote, All these, that is the kingdoms of the world, I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. End quote. Matthew 4, 9-10 In response to this objection, I agree with the objector's three statements, that Jesus worshipped the Father, 
that he never during his earthly ministry demanded worship, and that he taught that only Yahweh should be worshipped during his earthly ministry. Jesus arguably never demanded worship, although he accepted either worship or something close to it at various times, both before and after his resurrection. But the answer is that Jesus is talking to Satan here before his exaltation to God's right hand. At that time, the policy quoted was in place. Only God should be worshipped. But God himself can raise up his own beloved son to a place of honor and now require us to worship him. As Paul says, because of Jesus' amazing service as the willing lamb after raising him from the dead, quote, Therefore God has highly exalted and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. End quote. Philippians 2, 9-11 Jesus then is not competing with God. Paul is saying that when Jesus is worshipped, the glory also goes to the one who lifted him up. Section 8. Worship Let's talk about the term, the word, worship. Many nowadays suppose that, by definition, worship is something which can only be properly given to God. This is a mistake and will interfere with properly understanding the Bible. For example, the three wise men, upon finding the little Jesus, quote, fell down and worshipped him, end quote, Matthew 2.11. The Greek term translated worship here is proskuneo, what is probably the most cited English translation in current-day scholarship, though, translates, they knelt down and paid him homage. That's in the New Revised Standard Version. This term proskuneo can mean religious worship, and it can also mean just the sort of honor, homage, or obeisance one gives to a king or other human ruler. Both translations are technically correct, although the first one may mislead us into thinking that the wise men thought the baby Jesus to be God or a God. But the text tells us what they were thinking. They were searching for, quote, he who has been born king of the Jews, end quote, Matthew 2.2. They wanted, presumably, to pay homage to this child who is destined to be God's Messiah. Even the English term worship formerly was used, like the corresponding Greek and Hebrew terms, to mean both religious worship and other sorts of honoring. Thus, in the traditional marriage ceremony, one says, quote, With this ring I thee wed, with my body I thee worship. End quote. This is not some weird sort of idolatry in which you give religious worship to your soon-to-be spouse. Rather, you are simply promising to honor this person by giving them unique access to your body. Section 9. Idolatry On to a fourth objection. Religiously worshiping anything or anyone other than God himself is the sin of idolatry. But you've said that Jesus is someone other than God. Thus, you are recommending idolatry. Again, it is a sin to worship any creature, Romans 1.25, but you think that Jesus is a creature, so you are recommending a sin. In response, the Bible doesn't really support and, in fact, rules out that worshiping anything or anyone other than God himself is the sin of idolatry and that it is a sin to worship any creature. 
I am recommending neither the sin of idolatry nor any other sin. The word idolatry can mean at least two different things. Definition 1. The practice of honoring a representation or symbol as if it were a god or a person worthy of honor. Definition 2. The sin of honoring something or someone other than God in disobedience to God. The first is the sort of idolatry which is nearly universal in the world's religions. The symbol could be a statue, a painting, a tree, a cow, or even a common person. This object, whatever it is, is honored in various ways. One burns sweet-smelling incense before it, kisses it, bows to it, prays before or to it, gazes reverently upon it, leaves it offerings of money or food, etc. We can call this literal idolatry, and it was this type of practice which is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. When we look at talk of idolatry in the New Testament and in much later Christian theological discourse, they are often using definition two. In this sense, but not the first, idolatry is, by definition, a sin. It seems possible that a person might commit idolatry in the first sense, according to definition one, for instance, by worshiping a statue, and not be committing a sin because this person is non-culpably ignorant that God is against this sort of practice. But once one has that knowledge, then it will be a sin for one to worship that statue. To worship it then would be idolatry, according to definition 2. Consider the famous episode of the golden calf in Exodus 32. Moses is gone visiting with God, and while he's gone, the Hebrews, with the acquiescence of Aaron, construct a golden calf and proceed to worship it. Moses comes back and is furious, for he's already given them the divine command against idolatry in the first sense. They are accordingly judged harshly. Some readers think here that the Hebrews have turned away from Yahweh to worship one or more of the traditional gods of Egypt. Maybe that's right, but when one looks closely at the text and translates the word Elohim, which can mean gods or God, as best makes sense of the episode as a whole, then it instead appears that the Hebrews here meant to be worshiping Yahweh by means of this golden calf. After all, Aaron, who seems to be leading this disobedient worship, declares, it says, a feast day for Yahweh. Exodus 32.5 Probably they were returning to their traditional religious practices, worshiping using an idol, but if asked what they were doing, they'd have said they were worshiping Yahweh not the golden calf as such, but rather what it represents. That is, they would give the defense that idolaters give for their practices even today, that they worship not the object, but what it represents. But according to the text, Yahweh rejected their worship, and they were judged harshly, as they'd just been ordered not to do any such thing. See Exodus 20, 4 and 5. Though they intended to honor Yahweh in this way, he would have none of it. They had committed idolatry in our second sense as well as our first. They honored this object in disobedience to God. What then about the objection that it is a sin to worship any creature, but that on Unitarian Christology, which I accept, Jesus is a creature? Am I not advocating sin, and specifically the sin of idolatry? Let's look at what Paul actually says in Romans 1. He says of the Gentiles that, quote, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. End quote. Romans 1.25 
I suggest that rather than, the Greek term is para, is there for a reason. In the context, Paul is discussing what can be known about God just by observing the world apart from any special divine revelation. By what theologians now call general revelation, information about himself that God has made universally available through the physical world. Paul is saying that the Gentiles could tell that everything came from one perfect God, and despite this knowledge, they worshipped a creature rather than the Creator, God. They did this in opposition to God, in spite of what they knew, or maybe what they could have known, about God. Now, what if Christians worship Jesus, and Jesus is a creature, whether he was eternally generated by God, or whether he came into existence at or after his miraculous conception? Will this be idolatry in our second sense? No, for even if he is a creature, when we worship him, Christians are not serving a creature rather than the Creator, but rather we are honoring the Creator by means of honoring this creature, whom God has exalted so that we should worship him alongside God, as we've seen to the glory of God. God exalted Jesus just as predicted long before. In Psalm 110.1 we read, quote, The Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, originally that was a king, but prophetically this is the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. End quote. When God raises Jesus, as it were, up to his level, when God invites Jesus up to sit at his right hand, this implies that it is now appropriate for us to worship Jesus. To worship Jesus, then, is not to defy God, but rather to obey him. We don't serve this exalted creature rather than the Creator. We worship the Creator by worshiping this man, the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't idolatry in the second sense, because we're not doing this in disobedience to God, even though we are honoring or worshiping someone in addition to God. Perhaps a little fiction can help. Once upon a time, there was a mighty kingdom ruled over by Big Kim. This king decreed that all citizens should bow only to Big Kim and never to anyone else. Suppose now that you've lived your whole life in this kingdom, and that as far back as you can remember, you and all loyal subjects of Big Kim strictly obeyed this policy of bowing only to Big Kim. As time goes on, though, Big Kim decides to groom his son, the prince Little Kim, to take over. And Big Kim issues a new decree. O oh, loyal subjects, my people, you must now continue to bow always to me, but you must also bow whenever you are in the presence of my son, Little Kim. By this decree, Big Kim has exalted Little Kim to a place of honor. Now it is the law of the land that citizens must bow to Little Kim, even as they bow to Big Kim. But suppose you're a stubbornly conservative person. Your first reaction is, I can't bow to little Kim. For my whole life, I've bowed only to Big Kim, and I can show where it is written in his old decree that we should bow only to him. It would be treason for me to bow to little Kim. I would be a traitor. I would be subject to the king's wrath were I to bow to little Kim. What would happen to you if you persisted in this conservative stance? Big Kim would probably say, Off with your head! How dare you defy me! It is not a betrayal of me for you to bow down to little Kim, since I myself have ordered you to do so. You're a traitor if you defy me and refuse to bow to little Kim. 
I'm the king after all. Don't tell me that it's disloyal or illegal to do what I have just told you to do. How could you argue back? Would you urge that a king can't do this? Can't revise a previous policy? That's ridiculous. King may change his policies as he likes. He has the authority to do that. Section 10. Direct and Indirect Worship Back to theology. An omnipotent and authoritative God can raise his beloved Son up from the dead and can also raise him up to a place of honor, in effect ordering us to worship his Son alongside him. This makes it obligatory for us to worship that Son, creature or not, and God can do this even though he had previously issued this order, Only Worship Me. And as we've seen, this is the New Testament teaching about who Christians should worship, both God and His Son. Here is a helpful distinction which is already implicit in some things we've said. It's not explicitly stated in the Bible, but is presupposed in a passage in Luke where Jesus is addressing the 72 disciples He is about to send out. He tells them that, quote, The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. End quote. Luke 10 16. Notice that there are two kinds of acceptance and two kinds of rejection here. If you directly accept these disciples, you thereby indirectly accept Jesus. And we could add that if you accept Jesus, directly or indirectly, you thereby accept the one who sent him, God. Also see Matthew 10.40, John 3.31-36, and 1 John 2.22-23. On the other hand, if a person directly rejects these disciples, he thereby indirectly rejects Jesus who sent them. And, we could add, one who directly or indirectly rejects Jesus, thereby rejects the one who sent him, God. There are distinctions presupposed here, then, of direct versus indirect acceptance and of direct versus indirect rejection. In another passage, a similar distinction is presupposed concerning worship. Philippians 2, 8-11, which says about Jesus that, quote, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. End quote. To confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is to worship Him, giving Him glory as the rightful ruler over both church and the whole cosmos. Jesus here is the direct object of worship, but He's not the only object of worship, for all of this is to the glory of the Father. So God is the indirect object of Christian worship here. Paul doesn't use the terminology of direct worship and indirect worship, 
but he's presupposing that distinction here. I suggest the terms are helpful. They underscore that worshiping Jesus is not disrespecting God, but rather honoring God. God and Jesus are not in competition, because it is God who has, as it were, held up Jesus to be worshipped. Section 11. Worshipping Jesus as God A fifth objection is, how can you say we should worship Jesus as God when you say that he isn't God? In reply, the phrase, worship Jesus as God, is ambiguous. Of course, I do not argue that you should worship Jesus because you think Jesus is God himself, that Jesus just is God, for as we've seen, the New Testament implies that they are two. It is a confusion and inconsistent with the New Testament to think that Jesus and God are numerically one. But yes, you should worship Jesus as God if that means worshiping Jesus in the ways that you worship God, that is, doing the same actions with respect to both. Let me explain. We can distinguish four aspects of an act of worship. Object, mode, motive, and directness. Think of the worship of God and Jesus in Revelation chapter 5. There are two objects, two recipients of the group worship there. But the mode of worship, what one is physically doing, is the same. The worshipers sing to both and bow to both. Their motives are different. God is worshipped because he's the creator in Revelation 4. But when Jesus comes on the scene in Revelation 5, he's worshipped on the different grounds that he willingly served as a sacrifice, something which God did not also do. He's immortal, so incapable of death. And we thank God for sending his son, but we can't do that to Jesus, who has no son. Finally, an act of worship may be direct or indirect. As in Revelation 5, we worship Jesus directly, and by means of him, we also indirectly worship God. And of course, we also directly worship God himself, as in Revelation 4. Section 12. Equal Worship of Father, Son, and Spirit It's part of the small-c Catholic tradition which one sees in the so-called Church Fathers and later theologians that Father, Son, and Spirit are to be worshipped equally. This is often expressed in medieval art by depicting these three as similar-looking, bearded, and enthroned men sitting at the same level, sometimes even on one throne. We should observe a couple of things about this tradition. First, saying that it's so doesn't make it so. Suppose you meet a polygamist with three wives, and he loudly informs you that he loves them all equally. Well, maybe he does, but I suggest that you not take his word for it, but rather watch what he actually does. Of course, you could also ask the wives, or even just read their body language while he makes this fair-sounding proclamation. Saying it is one thing, and it actually being true is another. There are liturgical statements in these Catholic traditions which say that we worship each of the three equally, but of course, when you look at actual practice, and this is true from the New Testament till today, you will find that the Father and Son are worshipped to a much greater extent than the Holy Spirit ever is. Second, you will not find this idea or image of the three being equally worshipped anywhere in the New Testament. As scholars with many different commitments, Trinitarian or Unitarian, Roman Catholic or Protestant or Atheistic, have observed, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is never an object of worship. You may have noticed, for example, that this alleged third divine person, 
This third object of worship is not a recipient of worship in Revelation 4 or 5. Is this spirit not assumed to be active there in that corporate act of worship? Any Christian would say that he or it surely is assumed to be active there, and yet it is indisputable that the spirit is not a third object of worship there. In other artistic depictions, we see the father and son placed on a level, two men seated together with the spirit as a sort of afterthought and not as prominent, pictured as a bird, inspired by Mark 1.10. We should keep in mind that the father is not, never has been, and arguably could not be a man, although he might appear so in some theophany. Yet it makes sense to depict the father as if he were a man, because, like a human being, God is a self, an intelligent agent. But as to the Father and Son being placed on a level, arguably this is not quite the New Testament picture. Jesus, God's Son, isn't exactly God's peer, even though both are worshipped. In yet other traditional depictions, we find simply Jesus on a throne. There is nothing objectionable about this, unless there is a background assumption that this too is the one God Yahweh on his throne. That is, sometimes art reflects the confusion that Jesus is God himself, rather than the unique human mediator between God and humankind, 1 Timothy 2.5. We see this same confusion in the contemporary worship song which says, quote, I'm getting back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. End quote. Of course, Christian worship is about Jesus, but it is also about the one true God who sent Jesus. God sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, but Jesus did not send his Son to be the Savior of the world. Thus, Jesus is not God, and God is not Jesus. They are not numerically identical, for they have differed. Since we know that they have differed, we know that they are not numerically identical. The leading scholar has described this confused vision as Jesus-olatry. He doesn't mean that it is a sin of idolatry to worship Jesus, but rather, there's something out of whack here, as Jesus is being given a kind of prominence and centrality that he simply doesn't have in the New Testament. Jesus has eclipsed or taken the place of God here in these works of art and in these Christians' imaginations. But that imagination should give way to the New Testament picture. There, ultimately, it is all about God, the one who predestined, sent, empowered, raised, and exalted the man Jesus. Yes, it is about Jesus too, but God has made it so. Quote, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son. End quote. John 3.16 The final or ultimate emphasis is on the Father. Some Christian art just about gets this right. Consider the popular medieval and early modern Throne of Grace composition. The Holy Spirit is still a little bird in the scene, but the focus is on the Father, usually presented as a large, majestic, elderly human king, holding out the crucified Jesus to us. Jesus here, oddly enough, still on the cross, is at the center, but holding him there, offering him to us, is God. This, bird aside, gets the New Testament picture right. Both Father and Son are central, but God is primary in a way that his Son is not. It is God who has made this path for us to himself who has given us this eternal high priest, Hebrews 3.1, this eternal advocate, 1 John 2.1, this wonderful mediator of the new covenant, Hebrews 8.6, 9.15, and 12.24, who gives us access to God 
without the intercession of popes, priests, or saints. Section 13. Conclusion. In sum, the Father, the one true God, John 17, 1-3, is the ultimate, primary, or most fundamental object of Christian worship. And yet, Christians rightly worship Jesus, too, as God would have us to do. This worship involves all that religious worship does. Prayer, singing hymns, bowing, and so on. It need not and should not involve confusing Jesus with God. It is all to the glory of the one who exalted Jesus, the one who gave the fullest revelation of himself by means of this man. John 1, 15-18 Jesus said, quote, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. End quote. John 14, 9 Not because he is his Father, but rather because he's the perfect human representation of God. What if Jesus walked into the room right now, wherever you are, Would you worry about committing a sin of idolatry? Would you worry about distinguishing different kinds of worship and deciding which can be given to Jesus and which can only be given to his Father? Or would you, like me, immediately fall to the floor, face down, silent before the exalted Lord, simply worshiping him in awe and God through him? This week's thinking music has been the track Oxygen Mask by Andy G. Cohen. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download this entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at Trinity's org till next time don't forget to love God with all your mind <laughs>